0: Father, thank you that we once again can meet uh, together. Uh, There are many believers uh, in other parts of this world, all across the world, that would love to have uh, opportunities to gather, that would love to have a warm building to meet in, um, uh, resources that we enjoy without really thinking much about it, uh, are luxuries to many of your, your people. And So we want to say thank you. Uh, We're grateful for another Sunday, another day of gathering together. And we pray that we be led by your Spirit. In this hour, as we continue and we start to wrap up uh, our Reformation study uh, this week and next week, and then in the service to follow, I pray that you would be honored in all things and what we do and how we sing and how we interact with each other. And that... uh, our minds would be renewed uh, by your Spirit. In Christ's name, we do pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we've been talking about Calvin, and um, yeah, I, I don't want to take a lot of time to uh, uh, um, review a ton of what uh, uh, what we've already talked about here. But remember, he was in, Cal- in Geneva. And uh, then he got kicked out of Geneva, went to Strasbourg for about three years, and then he comes back, and he was excited to be back in Geneva, right? No. I offer my heart a slain victim and a sacrifice to the Lord, is what he said when he um, went back to Geneva. And I told you, when he resumed his preaching duties, he picked up in the very next verse of where he left off in his early exposition, and he would stay in Geneva for the rest of his life. Um, and uh, but this doesn't mean that the second time in Geneva was an easy stay for him. Um, he he had uh, some obstacles that we're gonna we're gonna talk about here in, in just a minute. Here again, remember Calvin was trying to make Geneva a Christian community, which he believed would embody God's will for human society. Uh, He didn't embrace the separation of church and state as we would or as our culture would today, Um, but he would never achieve all of his goals, uh, namely the Lord's Supper. Um, He wanted it to be celebrated at least weekly. Um, Several times a week was his preference, Um, but uh, that was not possible uh, because of the magistrate's Um, He had to make concessions to the Genevan magistrates and accept a celebration of communion only four times a year, Uh, Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, and the first Sunday in September, which was a a local uh, holiday. Uh, So this was something that he uh, had to put up with because, remember, he did not have any position of authority in Geneva, Um, even though they eventually called him to be one of the pastors in the city churches, the three city churches in Geneva. He uh, really did not have uh, any position of authority, particularly, uh, especially elected authority. Um, The magistrates, they opposed this weekly communion because they wanted the church's power of excommunication to be kept as far out of sight as possible. And so if the church is then... Uh, withholding the table from people because of, of unrepented sin, uh, that was going to, in their minds, uh, strengthen the power base of the church, and the magistrates would have rather not that happened. Um, and so, uh, this was, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, this was the main issue that was, uh, w- was a bone of contention with Calvin and the magistrates. Um, Calvin, he did secure the power of church discipline and excommunication for consistories, which I remember that was the pastors and elders in 1555, and that moved away from the city council, but that took many years. I mentioned this before that um, it's important that we understand that Calvin was not just a religious reformer, but he was a moral, social, and political reformer as well, although that wasn't the main arena in which he sought to work. Okay, so he, he wasn't trying to uh, change the political landscape, although he did influence it. Uh, he persuaded the city council to enforce uh, uh, laws against adultery, prostitution, pornography, drunkenness, dancing, gambling, swearing, disobedience to ch- of children to parents, etc., etc. These were things that he impressed upon the city council to say that these were things that they would have to uh, look out for. Because remember, he's trying to make this city a city that is following Christ, okay, in the Bible. Um, So Calvin's Geneva tried to reform itself not just in negative ways, though, as like laws against things, but also in providing ways to improve the social, economic, and cultural life of the community. And so these are some of the things that he did um, uh, in his reforms in Geneva. He established a free public education. Uh, established or helped helped establish, was instrumental in establishing a cloth and uh, silk industry for employment. Uh, He was instrumental in um, helping uh, the health and hygiene laws concerning the sale of foods. Uh, There were no health and hygiene laws, and you can imagine that uh, people were getting sick all the time. Uh, Calvin, in all of his readings and things, uh, was helpful in, in changing that. Uh, there was a program of supplying free latrines to all the houses in the city, which obviously helped the um, the, uh, the the cleanliness of the city. Uh, built a high-quality hospital and a place for homeless. Uh, set up or helped set up an unemployment agency. Social care for the poor and the aged. And so these were all things that... Calvin was instrumental in helping. He didn't do all these by himself, obviously, but this was part of his idea of making the Christian values, making the society a better place to live, and it be positively influenced uh, because of their belief in Jesus. And so, one of the things I think we can take away from this is that when in in Calvin, I don't know if this was his intention or not, but. Uh, when he sought to minister to people, he sought to minister to the whole person, not just one part of the person, okay? So, so I think of like James. Uh, James says, you know, talks about how that faith without works is dead. And then he gives an example there, and he talks about someone's hungry, and you say you could be warmed and filled and, you know, just go on your way, and you don't do anything to provide for the needs of the body. What type of faith is that, James says, you see, and that was a biblical principle that was driving Calvin in when he was trying to minister into his city. And so, I, you know, as I think about this, I think, okay, as the people who God puts in my life, am I willing to help them holistically? Am I willing to help them on a theological level, but am I willing to help them on a practical level too? Um, you know, it would be one thing if, uh, uh, you know, is in our neighborhood, We just moved in, you know, a couple months ago or whatever it was. And so we're still getting to know our neighbors and things like that. And um, uh, the other day, actually, it was Monday, um, I met, I think I briefly met her once before, but I I met a widow um, and talked with her for a little bit, uh, two doors down from us. And um, uh, she needed help with, uh, you know, some of the snow blowing and things like that. And I I was just talking to her about, about the gospel and things like that. And I thought, well, this is a good example of, of James here because it, it would have been good if I shared the gospel with her. That would have been good. Uh, but it would have been bad if I wouldn't have been willing to help shovel her snow, right? Okay? And, uh, and so this is, this is the type of ministry, I think, that uh, Calvin was really trying to have in Geneva of helping the entire person. So think about the people you're trying to influence. Okay? And how are you trying to influence them, whether it's your children um, I, 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 are we trying to just make them smarter? Are we trying to you know, keep them out of jail? <laughs> what, what is it? Um, and sometimes you're like, yeah, okay, you got to take the wins when you can get them. I get that, okay. Um, but the point is is that we should have a more holistic goal in when we're trying to help people and minister to people. And this is one thing that Calvin was doing in Geneva. Um, it really was a, a, a success this second time around in a lot of ways. Um, it became a near perfect example of a reformed community. Um, you know, they had refugees from all over Western Europe, but particularly France. There was a lot of French refugees that were coming in uh, there to the city of, of Calvin and Geneva. Um, so, what this meant is Geneva replaced Strasbourg now for the international headquarters of uh, Protestantism, the Reformed Protestantism. So he had Strasbourg that was the place to go. And Calvin went there for a few years. You remember he connected with uh, Bucer, And then uh, he gets called back to Geneva. And then God just begins to change some things there. Now, again, by no means does this mean that it was easy. It was hard, hard work, which we're going to see here in just a minute. But it was uh, a, a city that was transformed. in many, many ways. Um, Reformed refugees helped Calvin make Geneva into a model reformed city. And at the same time, what was happening is in this Geneva example, was inspiring them that when they were going back to their homelands, when it became possible for them to return to their homelands, they were taking what they learned in Geneva and what was established in Geneva, they were taking that back with them. And so we saw this, this uh, uh, we see these cities that are being reformed uh, in, in great ways, theologically, but also societally, uh, culturally as well. So it really was a, a, a beautiful thing Uh, John Knox, who we'll talk about next week, he's a Scottish reformer, and he pastored a congregation of the English Protestant refugees in Geneva. For a while, he was in exile from Scotland, and he ended up in Geneva working with Calvin, and he became a pastor of an English-speaking refugee congregation uh, from 1556 to 1559 and then he referred uh, in a letter to a friend that he wrote uh, Calvin this way he says this Geneva is the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on the earth since the days of the apostles okay and so this was in John Knox is 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 no slouch I mean John Knox is is not one that would have low expectations uh, which we're going to see next week he was a fiery individual yeah so the question is, should we be trying to have a Geneva today? I say, kind of like what we talked about last week, I say that we operate within the culture and context that is available to us. Um, and so I do think we should be trying to uh, influence society, okay? And we should be using the, the roads that we have. But I will say this, I think that the most... Um, Successful. I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for. Most powerful way to do that is what is often described in the pages of the New Testament is that as individual relationships. You know, having those conversations with the people on your neighborhood, you know, and things like that. Well, I, I think I think with any, and the question essentially is: Is this something should we be trying to do? Should we be trying to find a a place in in Wisconsin and, and set up you know a little Geneva in in Wisconsin. Uh, and what I would say to that is um, a couple things. One, uh, you have to also understand with what was going on in Calvin's Geneva, it wasn't that as soon as someone got out of line they got kicked out. Okay, uh, there was a lot of. If you read uh, Calvin's letters, particularly, you'll see a lot of pastoral hey, we're going to help this person. We're going to go try to encourage this person, you know, things like that. So it wasn't like, hey, you you cross the line, you're out. Okay, now eventually that was that if there was someone who would uh, resist pastoral instruction and care and things like that, then yes, then that would be something that they would Lean towards, but again, he even couldn't do that mostly because he didn't have the power to do that. Okay, so so there was a lot more pastoral instruction and care and things that were happening than simply just toe the line. You raise a good point, however, of that uh, we have to be careful that if we don't if we don't see heart change. Um, you know, moral change is, is not the goal. And it's actually kind of what we're talking about even last Sunday's sermon and today's sermon is, you know, that's, that, that's a danger. Uh, that was one of the imposters that we talked about last week of, of having um, a, an imposter of sanctification is just, you know, cleaning up one's actions without any heart change. So I think that there's always that danger. Um, I, don't, I don't know that Uh, this is something that we should be trying to do because of um, what this was born out of was a desire to see God's word rule, but it was also out of the context of which they were all assuming. You got to remember, in in Switzerland, they were ruled by these cantons. There's these 13 city-states they were either ruled by the Catholic Church or they were Protestants. I mean, it's, that's why I can't say that enough, that it was a completely different mindset. So it, it lent itself to doing something like that. But for us to try to establish a city, you know, of, of you know just Christians and the only way you can be a Christian, it would be completely uh, counterintuitive to, I think, what... Uh, what you know, reaching the lost people in our community would be. And this community in Geneva, they expected that. They expected whoever was in charge is going to set the rules. Um, I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago that you know, we're really in a unique time in history because most of hu- human history, we, humans were ruled by magistrates. They were ruled by a king. They were ruled by a tyrant or something like that. And that was just a way of life. And, and that's, I mean... We could argue that we are still that way, but at least, in, at least on paper, we're not supposed to be. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but um, I don't know if it's the, in my strategy of, of the Great Commission, replicating Geneva is not on my list, okay? Having said that, I don't know that, I don't think that that was a mistake of them to do that. Does that make sense? Well, I think what they, they were taking advantage of a unique time in history where the world was coming to them. Um, and so there were so many refugees coming in that then their mission strategy became train them and deploy them um, in a lot of ways. So I think that they were looking beyond their city in that way, but they were just using the, the, the context that, in the situation that they found themselves in. So, yeah, good questions. Um, I've mentioned that Calvin never had any position of public authority, other than he had the simple office of a pastor at Saint Peter's Church uh, there in Geneva. And this is a picture of the church, still there today. Uh, a couple years ago, when we were in France, uh, we visited uh, this uh, this church. And so, if you see right there, that's a nook's dad, and there's a nook. Um, but uh, so we, it's a, it's a. Beautiful structure, beautiful church. And just off to the side of it is um, a a teaching auditorium that Calvin and Knox and other people would teach in. And so uh, if you go inside, uh, you can just see how massive it is. Um, Just a a massive building. Um, And, of course, it was built uh, for a Catholic church. Does anyone know why uh, Catholic churches typically were made... This is kind of a side note here, but just massively big like this. Does anyone know the, the there's a reason why they did that? Exactly. It was designed, but their architecture was designed to make you feel small when you walked in. And not in a way of like, you're a worm and you're worthless, but, but a way of, we are so small in comparison to the God we're coming to worship. And, I, I, you know, th- that resonates with me in a lot of ways. Now I'm not advocating that we do a building for fund and, you know... <laughs> that bust out our ceiling and all that stuff. But I'm just saying that that kind of resonates with me, that intentionality of it there. Um, This there, you can't really see in the picture here, this is the actual chair that Calvin sat in, all right? Oh, come on. You should be more impressed than that. There we go. All right. Okay. Yeah, you can see how impressed my kids were. So, um, but uh, yeah, so, so there's, uh, they, they do have the chair, the pulpit, which these are the steps that go up. Uh, and so right here is the pulpit. There's a winding staircase that go up. And so it was kind of, it was, it was towards the front, but it was into the congregation quite a bit there. And that was for audit, uh, audio reasons. Um, the pulpit is not the same pulpit that's been refurbished, but uh, since then. But this is the chair that apparently uh, Calvin sat in there, so that's kind of cool. Yes. Chair five legs. That's funny. It's four and a half. So. <laughs> Oh, man, the reference there is the five points of Calvin if you didn't get that. So, uh, but anyway, um, so he did not have any political power, even though, in, in fact, the city didn't even give him full citizenship until 1559. And so what I wanted to point out about that is that he didn't have full citizenship in Geneva, uh, but yet he was the most influential person in the city. And here's the point that I want to drive home. Influence is given by God, not man. Okay? So the influence you have is, is a gift from God. It's not something that man just gives you. Okay? Because even the people that we promote into positions of leadership and things like that, it does, they, may, they may have authority, but they may not, they, that doesn't necessarily mean they have influence. And there's a big difference. And woe to the leader that doesn't understand the difference between leadership, I mean, between authority and influence. And so Calvin, he had no authority in the city, but he had influence. And so let me encourage you that as you're seeking to minister, you're seeking to live out a life pleasing to God, that your influence, you may not have any positions of authority, but you can have God-given influence by following the Scriptures, following Christ, and pointing people to Jesus. So there's a huge difference between authority and influence there. Uh, he reformed the church through preaching and teaching. Uh, the city council would only follow Calvin's reforming ideas if Calvin's arguments convinced enough of the council members, and he did not always convince them, especially in the years of 1548 to 1555. There was bitter conflict between Calvin's supporters and opponents, and the opponents dominated the city during these years. So I told you it wasn't always easy, and during these years it was very difficult, these seven years. Um, These opponents were mostly native Genevans from long-established families, and so they were opposing what Calvin was doing. Now, why do you think they were so opposed to what Calvin was doing? What do you think the reason was? Absolutely. What were they losing? There was influence, power, because these people they resented, there was about 6,000 foreign religious refugees into the city. you got to remember, the native population of Geneva was 13,000. So now you have 13,000 people that now 6,000 refugees, religious refugees, are coming into your city. Do you not think that's going to change the city in a lot of ways? And so Some of these long established families didn't like that and never really posed to this. And so uh, Calvin had to endure many, uh, that should say many, not may, I think it says, uh, insults and even threats against his life from opposition, and sometimes he fell into depression. He said, I wish God would let me leave this place, as we wrote 1546. Uh, let me talk a little bit about his worship here. And then we'll uh, we'll bring Calvin to a close, and and then begin the English Reformation. Uh, next week we'll do the second half of English Reformation, and then the Scottish Reformation. So that's that's the plan. Um, In Calvin and worship, he believed that nothing should be done in Christian worship unless the New Testament authorized it, okay? So this is called the regulative principle. And so this is something that he believed in. So he followed Zwingli in rejecting most of the ritual medieval Catholic worship, so images, candles, priestly robes, etc. This was a difference, you remember, from Luther. Luther says unless the Scriptures forbid it, you can do it. Whereas Zwingli and now Calvin are saying, no, the Scriptures has to authorize it. Now there was a, a difference of, uh, of of opinion though between Zwingli and Calvin, and that was congregational singing. Remember, Zwingli had no congregational singing; um, uh, they just merely recited Scriptures during their worship services. But Calvin thought it was important that we sang uh, Scripture songs. Uh, in our worship services. However, having said that, he did not want to use musical instruments. No music at all. No, no musical instruments at all. And this would be, again, different than Luther, who uh, advocated the use of the organ. Now, why do you think he was against musical instruments? What do you think his rationale was for that? Yeah, I, 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 it definitely wasn't the beat. Um. But but you know, I've heard that before plenty of times. Um, but uh, yes, it was the idea of not being in the New Testament uh, of sorts. Um, he said this, uh, and I'll explain it just a little bit. Um, let's see here. We are not forbidden to use musical instruments in private. So he was okay with using in your homes and things like that, but it's not in church service. But we are banished out of the churches by a clear command of the Holy Spirit when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 13 that we are to pray to God in a known tongue. So what his understanding was, and I differ with him on this, what his understanding was is that music, the musical instruments, were, were a different tongue, a different type of language, okay? A different method of communication than spoken word. And so he says this is not what we should be doing. Furthermore, he viewed, um, uh, he had another reason for it. It's because an argument would often come up, and then he addresses it when he, he's talking about this, is what about the Psalms then? Okay, well, the Psalms clearly talk about musical instruments, right? You know, the lyre, the flute, you know, clanging cymbals, all that stuff. And so the question is, is like, so Calvin, why are you... Um, against this if the Psalms clearly do it and he said that it was part of the law and it was part of a shadow of the things to come that when Jesus came the use of the law to make people aware of God is put away so he says that in the in the Psalms they needed that to make people aware of God and it was the way that God did that but now that Jesus came we don't need that anymore and so therefore music instruments have no place in corporate worship now I disagree Um, I disagree obviously I do but you can understand at least what he's trying to say. And, and again, in my goal um, in teaching this course is, um, is not always to take a position to everything, but to tell you what these guys thought. But you know me, have an opinion on everything. So um, I often tell you what I think. But, but this, is, this is his thought on this, um, that music was good. It was good in, in, in your homes. It was good in the gatherings and things like that. people. But in church worship services, No musical instruments, because it should be a spoken word only, the known tongue. Again, I disagree, but that was his rationale for it. Um, Yes. Yeah, he he did have authority in the church. He didn't have authority in the city. So yeah, if you were to go to Calvin's one of Calvin's worship services, you would have sung songs, but there would have been no musical instruments. Definitely he believed in his pastoral authority. I don't know if absolute or not, but um, people were fine with it apparently. I, and, this is, and this is where as you, we look at—and this is another good point to bring up here—we look back at these giants, and I think they're giants. I mean, Calvin's intellect was incredible. His, his theological mind was sharp. But then there's times where people just get something wrong. And, and I think that God allows that to happen for, for a good reason, so that we follow Christ, not man okay? You know, we, it's, it's a bad deal if, if we look at someone's teaching and we think, oh, everything he says is right. You know, Calvin, everything he says, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I'm a mirror of Calvin. That would be a problem, okay? And so I think God allows people to, um, you know, maybe make a, a wrong application or something like that to show that man is fallible because we, are ten- we tend towards hero worship, and that happens today, I uh, have the New Testament, some say I'm a Paul, some say I'm a Paulus. you know, things like that. And so this, has, this is part of who we are. It happens today. I'm of John MacArthur, I'm of John Piper, I'm of, you know, R.C. Sproul, I'm of, you know, you name it, whoever your favorite pr- preacher is, uh, you know, national speaker. Um, we got to be really careful. I read all these guys, and I read a lot of guys. I'm going to quote uh, Kevin DeYoung here uh, in the sermon. I'm going to also quote J.C. Ryle um, guys both are one one from nineteenth century one from modern day who are i uh, 've benefited from reading the materials and one here and speak in person, but um, um, I disagree with both of them at points, and there 's going to be times where you disagree with me on something and i 'm okay with that michael 's not in his head over there yeah um, you know, and, and i 'm okay with that uh, you know, as long as we can do it agreeably of course you know but but the, the point is is that. No one man is going to be completely perfect in all of his understanding of scriptures and teaching. This is not going to happen. Yes, yeah, and and not to make anyone nervous, I I understand the infant baptism position, and and again, don't worry. But a lot of it resonates with me. Like I like the symbolism that they that that they say is there. The problem is I don't see it supported in Scripture. So, I mean, I like it. I like what's there. I like what they're saying happens. I see how they tie it to the Old Testament mark of uh, circumcision. I see all that. It resonates. But when I look at the evidence in the New Testament, I, I just can't get there. Um, so, so I think that, insta- and you weren't doing this, so I know that. I'm just saying instead of just disregarding people's opinions, I think it's good to interact with why that they believe that way and, and have an appreciation for it but still be able to say, mm, I don't agree with that. So yeah, those are two other good points that need to be brought up there. Um, I do want to bring up something about his liturgy, and that's just kind of the order of service that he did in there. Um, only because there is a, a, this is a, a good distinction between the Catholic Church. Calvin, he included what was called a word of absolution, which is spoken by the ministers after the confession of sin. So what this was is that there was um, uh, you know, congregational reciting things back and forth. And the, the, the minister, whoever that would, was, didn't have to be Calvin, uh, but would be leading in a statement, the congregation would respond. Um, and this would go back and forth with different elements in the worship service. In one of them, in the very beginning of the service, there was a confession of sin. And you'll still find this in some churches today. Um, and I, it, it, part of me, again, resonates with me. But it's a time for the congregation to to confess sin, and it's not like specific sins. Like you know, it's not like you know the congregation starts listing everything they did that week. It's it's a statement that they've read that acknowledges their sinfulness. Okay, and then there's this word of absolution. Um, if you want to read some of these, I've got a book that contains some of these that you could see. Um, but this was a really important element in Calvin's conception of worship. And here's the reason. is because it was a declaration by the minister that the sins of the repentant congregation had been forgiven by God, okay? Now, the reason why this is important is that, the, that God had forgiven his people, okay? And that was different than the Roman Catholic idea of absolution, which the priest confers forgiveness, okay? And so this was a big issue of, how do people get forgiven there? And this was a different thing. And so Calvin, he inserted in his worship service this word of absolution saying that Christ has forgiven you, God has forgiven you in Christ, versus more of the Catholic understanding of that the priest is conferring the forgiveness of God upon the congregation. Again, it was the culture. It was the context. It was the, the, the way he was trying to minister to the people at that time as they're processing all these things. And so that was an important part in Calvin's worship service. doesn't mean that we have to do it but it was an important part for what he was trying to do. Um, but the priority was definitely in preaching. He says this, so I'm gonna just share a few quotes with you real quickly here. Whenever we see the word of God purely preached and heard in the sacraments, uh, administered according to Christ's institution, there is not to be doubted a church uh, a God exists. There, it is not to be doubted, a church of God exists, okay? Uh, he says, an assembly in which the preaching of heavenly doctrine is not heard, does not deserve to be reckoned to church. He says, Preaching, the the word of God being given, being taught and instructed, is is central to a gathering of the Scriptures. He says this. This is an important part, too. He says we must all be uh, pupils of the Holy Scriptures, Eve to tend, Eve, those I mean who are appointed to proclaim the word, if we enter the pulpit, it is on this condition that we learn while teaching others. I'm not speaking here merely that others may hear me, but I too, for my part, must be a pupil of God, and the word which goes forth from my lips must profit myself. Otherwise, that should be woe, is me. And so it, 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 then, it, it was just shows that he had this priority of preaching that it should be that the preacher himself is also learning. He's saying if the preacher's not learning and constantly growing, then the Word is not doing the work in in the life of the preacher, and it's not going to do the life in the church. It's so important that we never think that if we have opportunities to teach, that we're always learning. And if you do teach, you know that often you're learning more than who you are teaching. You're learning much more than those who you're teaching. He said this, it is presumptuous it almost blasphemous to turn the meaning of Scripture around without due care, as though if it were some game that we were playing. And what he's saying is there's like, it's almost blasphemous just to, just to talk about what the Scriptures mean without due diligence and due study and due care. This is not a game we're playing, he was saying. So you can see his heart coming through some of these quotations. Let me bring it up down to close here about Calvin there's some things that he achieved he Uh, provided the Reformed churches with a clear, deep, solid theology in the institutes. He gave the Reformed movement a pattern of church government which mobilized the laity and enabled Reformed believers to survive, organize, and flourish despite state opposition and persecution. What they learned in Geneva, they took back with them to where they uh, were were from. He showed that the world, that a city which embodied the Reformed faith and how it lived it out, he showed that that was possible. Um, The Reformed... um, of uh, faith became an international movement with a sense of brotherhood that crossed national boundaries. Geneva became a vital center of this international reform cause. Um, he made the reform faith in the great um, uh, Protestant missionary movement of the 16th century. He, he started what was called the Geneva Academy. Um, and this was founded in 1559 and students from all over Europe came to this. It began with only 162 students but within six years, they had 1,600 students that came to study in his Geneva Academy. And uh, this is uh, it was closed when we were there, so I was not able to go in. Uh, my son is, ex- is showing his disappointment. Um, but uh, w- this is where uh, Calvin would lecture. And it's just off to the right of St. Peter's Church. This is where he would lecture throughout the week. John Knox would lecture throughout the week there when he was in town and many other great reformers and teachers. So this is what he did. I mean, he, you look at the things that he accomplished, you look at all the things that he was able to do, and you think, this guy was just incredibly used to the Lord. I mean, the things he was able to accomplish, the intellect, the, the, the writings that he was able to write, the, the copious amount of writings, the, the preaching schedule, the teaching schedule that he had was was. uh, just entirely uh, brutal and and insane, but he was able to get all these things done. But before I share, uh, move on to the English Reformation, I need to tell you about his health. You see, throughout his life, he had terrible health. These are some of the things that he struggled with throughout most of his life. Arthritis, migraine headaches. Have you ever tried to write something while having a migraine headache? Have you ever tried to give a lecture while having a migraine? Bleeding from the stomach, tremendous bowel disorders, hemorrhoids, inflamed kidneys and kidney stones, um, fevers, muscle cramps, gout all the time. There were multiple times where he literally was carried in a chair because he couldn't walk to church to preach or he couldn't walk to the academy to teach. And so they would group of guys would pick him up in his chair and carry him there, and then he would then uh, deliver his lecture or his sermon in that way. He was tenacious about uh, teaching and, and following God, but he was struggling and struggling with his health. And so I, I share that to say because not a lot of people think about that when they think of Calvin. I just want to say that, you know, a lot of times we tend to think that health will eliminate our ability to serve God or something like that. And I'm not saying that you need to do what Calvin did. I'm not saying that he always made the right decisions, particularly about his health. But what I am saying is that God is even bigger than the health problems that we struggle with. And again, it will take us down. So I'm not saying, you know, just suck it up. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that the health problems do not have to keep us from serving God. We can find other ways to do it in ways that other people can help and do these things. And so I, I'm amazed that Calvin was able to do what he did, suffering and how he did. It just shows not Calvin's resolve. It shows God's grace and enablement. He died May 27, 1564. Um, uh, he said, uh, Peter Beza said this of him, Having been a spectator of his conduct of his life for 16 years, I have given a faithful account both of his life and of his death, and I can now declare that in him all men may see a most beautiful example of Christian character, an example which is as easily to slander as it is difficult to imitate. And so he talked about how, um, you know, this was uh, uh, people... He had, his, he had his naysayers, and he had people that was talking against him, and Bezos saying... You know, when, when you have someone that's trying to do right, there's going to be a lot of naysayers. But those same people would have a hard time imitating the life that Calvin did live. Um, so I'll say this. Um, there's one thing that we didn't talk about in Calvin's life that you may have been surprised that I didn't bring up. And does anyone have any idea that, what that is? Yeah, predestination, right? Now, why didn't I bring it up? Is it because I, I, I don't want to deal with it? No. One, I mean, to, to really deal with it, it's outside the scope of the, 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 this course. But what I will say this is, the reason why I didn't bring it up is because all of the Reformers believed in predestination. Okay? It wasn't just Calvin. See, this is, this is, this is a mis- misunderstanding, a misconception about Calvin, is that he is the one who came up with the five points. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that he didn't believe in the, five points of Calvin because he did, but he didn't come up with them. He said, wait a minute you, you you've lost me here. As I said, is that everyone at this time, you know, believed in predestination and, and these, uh, what we would know as Calvinism. Uh, both Luther and Calvin uh, affirmed the doctrine of predestination. And, and so it wasn't Calvinism that was the defining and dividing issue of the Reformers, within the Reformers. It was the Lord's Supper, okay? That's what the defining, differing issue was. Um, but I will say this, is that it wasn't until 50 years after Calvin's death that the five points of Calvin became codified, okay? This was at the Synod of Dort, And what had happened was, is there was a man by the name of Jacob Arminius, who had five points of Arminian. his followers were saying, here's five points. And so then Calvin's uh, 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 brotherhood of his theological mindset, they met in Holland at the Synod of Dort 50 years after his death, and they said, well, here's five points to refute those five points that you've brought up. And that became known as the five points of Calvin. Now, the reason why it was five points of Calvin is because they used a lot of Calvin's writings. Now, the reason why they used a lot of Calvin's writings was because he was the most prolific author during the time. He had written the most, and he had the most most tightly formed and scripturally based arguments available to them. And so they used Calvin's writings to say, no, 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 this is where Arminius is wrong. And so this five points of Calvin thing uh, it wasn't like Calvin wrote. If you read his Institutes of the Christian Religion, you're not going to find Tulip in there, okay? You're not going to find this the cross of the five points of Calvin. Now, you will see the, the, the theological understanding of those things, but that was, those five points came after his death. And so a lot of times people think that in Geneva, Calvin was, you know, at this academy, he's teaching TULIP all the time, and, you know, this was like the, the reason, uh, you know, in order to stay in the city of Geneva, you had to recite TULIP or something like that. That wasn't the case. That wasn't the case at all. So that's one of the reasons why they didn't make a big deal about it, because he was just simply just teaching the gospel, like, and then, like, all the reformers would have agreed with him on, uh, on this issue. Um, so what I need to do now, we only have a couple minutes left, but go ahead, I can, I can start the English Reformation, I, just, I meant to just introduce this anyway today, but go ahead, let me look at that, I'll get back to you on that, all right, English Reformation, again, I, I, I'm just going to be bringing, the, the, introducing this this morning, um, and then uh, we'll finish it next week, and then the, the Scottish Reformation, the two main things that you need to know, about the Reformation in England, and there's, and I am, you know, if you were to talk to, you know, uh, a, a college professor who talks about, you know, church history, or something like that, and if he were to see the slide, he would be like, that is way too reductionistic, Jeremy. And I would say, I know, you're right. Um, but this is for our purpose sake. I think the two main things for us to understand what influenced the Reformation in England was the English Bible and the English throne, okay? And we're not even going to get into the throne today. I'm going to introduce the Bible uh, today, So this English Bible, um, this was uh, from a group of people called the Lollards, okay? And these were followers of John Wycliffe. You remember Wycliffe uh, uh, lived earlier on, and then he had a group of followers that came after him. They were known as the Lollards. A uh, part of that was, uh, it was a derogatory term, by the way, of... Talking about that, how that these people were uneducated they didn't know how to speak, and when they did speak, it sounded like mumbling and gibberish, and that's where that term comes from. Um, and so, um, but uh, these were people who began to get parts of Luther's books. Okay, that were coming into England, particularly into London. They were getting fragments of this, and they were. Uh, it really was an underground movement that they were trying to get uh, an English Bible. Um, so uh, as I say that uh, these are uh, disciples of John Wycliffe uh, and they embraced the Lutheran revolt against Rome and they made new English translations of parts of the Bible and then they, uh, they secretly distributed them. Um, they, were, uh, they were crude um, uh, translations but they... It was the the best that they had available to them, and so they distributed them. But you got to understand that this was—I said this was an underground movement because this was risky and dangerous at this time. Uh, John Fox, if you read his book, Fox Fox's Book of Christian Martyrs, uh, tells a story of seven people, probably Lollards, uh, who were burned alive in England. Uh, they were burned alive at the stake in 1519. So this is just two years after. Luther nails his uh, Ninety-Five Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Um, What was the crime? Why were they burned alive? Well, the crime was that they taught the children the Lord's Prayer in English. That was the crime. Okay, one of the seven uh, who was burned was a woman, and at first she was released. And so, as one of the bishop's officers was escorting her away, he. He grabbed her arm to escort her away and heard the sound of of paper crumpling and crinkling in her dress sleeve. And so he demanded that she produce it and inside hidden was a crumpled copy of the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments all written in English. And so he immediately returned her to the bishop who sentenced her to be burned with the other six men who were already condemned. So these lollers distributing the Bible and looking to get it in English was risky business. But here's the question. Why were church authorities so against translating the Bible in English? Why was this such a big deal to them? There's, there's two main reasons, and that's one. The idea of authority and influence, okay, who's in control, okay, that's one. Another reason, yes? Well, that, that's part of it, um, because who would know those languages? Just the educated priest, right? Okay. Because um, here's the reason. In the minds of, uh, I think i put uh, or granting, I'll put it as a summary, granting independence of thought and faith to common man and women, they believe, could only lead to heresy, rebellion, or both. Okay. Because they believe that the Bible is dead and it needs an expositor. So the Scripture isn't alive. The Scripture needs someone who is uh, qu- uh, uh, qualified to interpret the Scriptures for them. And if you give that to the common person, it's just going to lead to heresy. It's going to lead to problems because they are not qualified to interpret the Scriptures. And so we must stop this heresy and stop this deviation from God's Word as fast as possible. This is the thought. Okay? Uh, and it's true today. Um, my, the house we moved from, uh, we were renting and we had a landlord and, and, uh, talking to him about religion and things like that, found out he's an Orthodox Catholic. Okay. And so we had some good conversation about that. And so I was asking him about different things and, uh, we were talking about obviously difference of opinion or difference of belief and stuff. And so, um, I asked him, I said, well, what's your favorite book to read or your book of the Bible to read? And he said, I don't really have one. Um, I said, uh, um, and he says something to the effect of, I don't think it's that important to read the Bible or something like that. And I said, well, man, I mean, the Catholic Church is supposed to be based on the Bible, so don't you think you should read it? And he says, well, that's not my job because I'm not qualified to read the Bible. He says, I, 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 I don't have the ability to interpret the Bible. You know, that's why we have priests. So they interpret it for us because they're the ones qualified to interpret the Bible. He says, that's the problem with your churches. That's why you have so many of them. He says, because you're all interpreting the Bible differently. He goes, this is the reason why the Catholic church is the true church is because we have one interpretation of the Scriptures and it's coming to us by the people who are qualified to interpret the Scriptures. That's your problem. You have too many people interpreting the Scriptures when they're not qualified to do it. So this belief is still today. Okay, and so this is the reason why back in England in English Reformation people were getting killed over this is because they thought, well, man, now they're going to start interpreting the Bible for themselves, and who knows what's going to happen there. Um, uh, one of the a bishop today, uh, I, I think he's still alive, maybe not. The Scripture is dead; it must have a living expositor, is what a Catholic bishop has said. And so this is the reason why it was so. Um, crucial for uh or it was such a a major offense for the bible to be translated into common language next week going to we get more into the guy by the name of william tyndale tyndale was a man who god used to um uh, uh see the bible come into the english language and so you and i definitely benefit directly from this man's ministry and how God used him. So we're going to pick up there next week on William Tyndale, finish the English Reformation, and talk briefly about the Scottish Reformation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it available to us. Thank you for people who are willing to sacrifice uh, for your word, and we pray that we would uh, be reminded of what a gift we have and not take it for granted. Um, And so we're grateful for what you have given to us. I pray that not only will we just own a copy, that we'd read it, and we'd live it. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.